Welcome back to a, another episode of From Harlem to Homicide to Hollywood. <clears throat> First, I want to thank you all for um, <clears throat> tuning in, commenting, asking questions on our, uh, our last episode, which was mainly <clears throat> about my childhood. Um, <clears throat> today, Today, we're going to talk about the Hollywood end of uh, From Harlem to Homicide to Hollywood. In 1961, I was, uh, I was working in narcotics. And um, down in narcotics, as we called it, the office was located downtown were two detectives by the name of Sonny Grasso and Eddie Egan. Now, <clears throat> what I did, what I did in narcotics, was street narcotics. By that, I meant that I knocked on doors and made buys. <clears throat> I had been doing this for about 14, 15 months, undercover narcotics. Sonny Grasso, Eddie Egan, they were working on uh, a level of narcotics that consisted of keys, large amounts. <clears throat> I, again, was street narcotics. Um, at the time, um, and it probably is today, it was dangerous. Uh, we, had, we had one of our officers that was shot. Uh, we had another one that lost his life buying narcotics in the street. Uh, mainly, my buys consisted of $75, and they were called half loads. Um, heroin, at that time, was the drug of choice, should I say. So one day, uh, I'm <clears throat> out there making a second buy the courts were now asking that you make uh, a second buy at the same location. They were called, the first buy was called the A buy, and the second one was called the B buy. So I was in Alphabet City uh, in New York City, uh, in Manhattan. Alphabet City was basically located in the lower part of Manhattan. So I went to make a, a second buy. And I went up the stairs, I went, I knocked on the door, <clears throat> we completed the transaction, I gave the money, we weren't marking the money at that time, I gave the money, he gave me the half load wrapped up in a rubber band, and I'm now starting, and this is on the top floor, and I'm now starting downstairs. And uh, I see, as I've said in the past, I see, you know, sneakers and hands coming up the stairs, and I know I'm in trouble. So I beat it back up the stairs, I get to the roof, and I can hear them behind me. And as I pass the, the door of where I bought the narcotics, <clears throat> I made it my business that I was going to come back. <laughs> I was going to come back and they were going to hear from me. I made it up to the roof. 
and I jumped over two or three roofs, and um, <clears throat> I managed to get on the fire escape, and I started down. Now, I always had a backup, and the backup, of course, was down the street, up on the corner. By the way, this, this buy was just off of uh, Delancey Street, which is a main street uh, in Manhattan. And the neighborhood prim primarily is Jewish. So I made it over a couple of roofs, and I got down the fire escape, and I'm, I'm looking to see who's behind me. And I got down onto, this, uh, down onto the street, and I got onto the side street, and I came out as fast as I could on Del uh, uh, Delaney Street. And immediately, <clears throat> not to call attention to myself, or to blow my cover, as they say, I fit into whatever was going on in the street. By that I mean, I didn't call attention to myself. I wasn't running, looking over my shoulder. I was doing nothing like that to call attention to myself. And I got out onto Delancey Street, and uh, <clears throat> immediately, immediately, uh, I knew something was wrong with the street. Something was wrong with the street. Any cop that's undercover, <clears throat> when he comes out, wherever he's going, his stomach tells him something's not correct. Something is not right here. Um, I looked at the people, and it looked like... Um, it looked like a film that was being filmed in black and white, slow motion. I didn't know, <clears throat> but something was not right. So as I walked by to go to the precinct to where I'm going to turn in my, turn in my drugs, make sure that I'm not followed uh, to turn in my drugs, and I believe the precinct at the time uh, was the 7th precinct. So as I'm walking by Delancey Street, there's a, a restaurant there called Ratner's. Everybody that lived in the neighborhood know about Ratner's. Great bagels. So I see people standing outside. Remember, this is uh, 1961. It's na I joined that unit. It's now 1963. And I see people standing outside of Ratner's, and they're looking at a television that's black and white that's playing out in the window. And there's a crowd of them uh, standing there lo uh, looking at the TV. So I make my way into the, uh, into the precinct. I make sure that I'm not followed. And I go in there, and there's a sergeant behind the desk. Now, I know we're so used to television and movies uh, today showing uh, cops with long hair, uh, tattoos, beards, but not in 1963. In 1963, <clears throat> the average cop looked like Eddie Egan. He absolutely looked like Eddie Egan. Undercover wasn't a thing that was really known to the public. It was not. So I get inside looking like I look with long hair, my hair tied back in a rubber band. I got a, I, I, I got a growth, and I walk in, and there's a sergeant behind the desk. And of course, he's giving me the once-over. So we do what we call, there's a dance. 
So when I walk in there, I tell him I'm undercover. And, uh, you know, the looks, the look that comes back to me, it's, yeah, sure. So now I have to prove it. So I start giving him numbers that only another cop would understand. A UF-61, that means a crime has been reported. A DD-5, that is to supplement, to supplement the 61. And then I give him what's called a UF-28, and that's for I want a day off or I'm going on vacation. So now <clears throat> we both realize who I am and I have narcotics that I'm going to turn over to him. Continuity. Continuity. So I give it to him. He accepts it. And he puts it in a safe in front of me. I see it's in the safe. The next time it's going to come out, it's going to come out of the safe. And it's coming right into my hands. And it's going to go down into the lab. Continuity is so important for a conviction in court, which you will go on trial for this. So while this is going on, I said to him, I said, where is everybody? Because usually the station house is crowded. And he, he didn't answer me. And I said, what's going on? Really, what's going on? <clears throat> I have to use a word here. And he looked at me and he said, <clears throat> I don't know where you've been but they just shot and killed the President of the United States. Some fuck just shot and killed the President of the United States. And of course, <clears throat> that was John F. Kennedy. I, by now being a cop, I've seen a lot, I've heard a lot, and sometimes I just don't go into shock anymore. I'm numb. But when I heard that, I was frozen. I was absolutely frozen. And of course, everybody that was in the station house was upstairs looking at the, the TV. I, I believe it was Walter Cronkite that was uh, reporting on this. So I'm telling you, for the next two weeks, I mean, the New York City Police Department stopped stopped. We, we, were not we were not functioning. We were not functioning at all. And I can imagine that people will come on and tell you that <clears throat> the same thing. Whatever they were doing, it, it, it stopped. Uh, I don't know to this day what happened to that arrest that I gave uh, uh, the narcotics to. I, I, I don't know if the case ever went on, if it was prosecuted. I really don't remember. But for the next two weeks, it was all about uh, the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, had been shot and killed. At the end of the, at the, end of the two weeks, um, <clears throat> I was called uh, to, the Manhattan, uh, to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Now, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office uh, operates entirely different but in conjunction with the New York City Police Department. Uh, you know, law and order, you can, you, you, that's the best way that I could say it to you. That show shows the cops out doing what they do, and eventually it winds up in the district attorney's office, and they do what they have to do. Very rarely, very rarely, it never happened to me, 
that you get called to the district attorney's office over a case. Usually, it's the New York City Police Department that brings it to the district attorney's office. So they operate in separately, but in conjunction. So I get called over to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and uh, there's a captain in there. Uh, there is uh, two uniform, two uniform men, which I recognize right away as uh, detectives. They're, they're, they're dressed in uh, civilian clothes, and there is the uh, district attorney. Now I believe at that at that time, the uh, the assistant district attorney was uh, Najari. He was Najari. He would go on to lead the special prosecutor's office, which was a very prestigious and a thorough investigation uh, unit. So I sit down, <clears throat> and it goes with um, your undercover narcotics, how long you've been on the job, uh, a, a, a lot of questions that I thought... <clears throat> that I thought, and I interrupted them, and I said, what's this all about? I mean, um, am I being investigated for something? Uh, really, what's this all about? <clears throat> and they went about it in the, the long way around, and it went like this. There is a, um, there is a, a community uh, <clears throat> As there are various communities throughout the city, there is a community in Greenwich Village. It's a very strong, it's a very strong uh, community. And as you know, they house, they house or have within this community a lot of homosexuals. And the homosexuals have come to the district attorney's office with the following. <clears throat> and so now... I'm really looking. I'm really looking at the captain. I'm looking at the detectives over there, and this is the following story that I hear. It seems that they believe they believe there are two people out in this community who are not homosexuals. One is black, and one is white they would later be called the salt and pepper team. Uh, one is white and one is black. And what they are doing, remember the times now, it's 1963, and, you know, I hate this term, but, you know, homosexuals are still in the closet. It's not what you see today. So, it seems that they are catching homosexuals in a compromising situation. And once they catch them, they grab them. And uh, they take them back to their car. And um, they, literally, they literally take them, you know, a lot of this happened at night. Uh, they would keep them, keep them overnight and until the banks opened up in the morning, and then they would take them to the bank, and if they could withdraw whatever savings they had from the bank, um, and they would get the money. They would get the money from, they, they would get the money from them. 
again, 1963, there's not too many people uh, in that world that would be coming forward and saying exactly what happened, especially the situation possibly that, you know, that, that, that they were caught in. So they were operating like that. And <clears throat> I will tell you a little later on, it got worse. It got worse what they were doing. And if it didn't work that the uh, individual didn't have a savings account or whatever it is, he would call his parents. And <clears throat> if the parents were, they were generally in the city, they would drive this individual to where the parents' bank was and extract the money. And of course, he would get the money from his parents and then he would give it to them. So they said to me, we want you, you know, to go, and it was, it's much longer than what I'm giving it to you here, but we want you to go and, uh, you know, and they, this is their words, infiltrate that world. Go and live in that world and, <clears throat> you know, and let's, get the, and let's get these bastards. And I was the first one to say to the captain that was there, I said, are these cops? And the assistant district attorney, well, we suspect there are cops. I turned back to the captain and said, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't work on cops. I don't work on cops. Cap, you know that there's a unit, there's a unit that works uh, that works on cops. And, and, and the captain really just sort of shook his head. He was very, very quiet. He, he, he didn't say anything. The two detectives that were there, and, they, and the two detectives that were there, maybe they were from internal affairs, I really don't know. Uh, they turned and said, you know, <clears throat> there's no way, there's no way that internal affairs, and they use this word, there's no way that internal affairs is going to be able, you know, to infiltrate that world, I I infiltrate that world. And I said, oh, okay, <clears throat> here's what we have done. Like I say, this took hours. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> we have an apartment for you. It's over on Bleecker Street. Uh, we want you to go over there and visit the apartment. And the ADA said to me, not looking like that, not looking like that. Now, again, it was the beard scruffed up, I'm in narcotics, the long hair, pretending I'm a junkie, looking like a junkie. So I had to change, I had to change completely uh, of how I looked. I actually, how I talked, how I acted, I had been doing this, like I say, 14, 15 months. This assignment that I did take would last close to eight months. So obviously, I <clears throat> changed myself. I changed myself into um, looking like and acting like and living like over in that apartment. Uh, for the better part of six or seven months while ingratiating myself into 
that world. <clears throat> Got to take a break. More when we come back. You want to star in your own success? Call QuickCast, www.quickcast.com, 866-7-CAST-NOW. That's 866-7-CAST-NOW, QuickCast. Star in your own success. Elm Logistics, for all your logistic needs, call 631 631- 299-3595. That's 631-299-3595. Elm Global Logistics. Pride, performance, and partnerships. That's right, folks. Canine Corral for all your dog daycare and overnight care. Call 631-549-1544. That's 631-549-1544. Welcome back. <clears throat> so I ingratiated myself into that world. <clears throat> and I met people, specifically uh, a, na- uh, <clears throat> a neighbor down the hall. Uh, we would go for coffee in the morning. Now, <clears throat> I did have another life. It wasn't that I stayed there for six months and, and, and never got out. Uh, <clears throat> but by the end of uh, six months... All honesty, uh, being undercover that long, I really, there were times I really forgot I was a cop. I really forgot I was a cop. So I could go on about how long it took me to try to get into these, uh, to get into the clubs, uh, to, get in, uh, to get into the bars. Uh, one quick story, though. <clears throat> um, I was turned away from going into uh, one of the bars. Uh, You had to know somebody. So I, um, it's the same like narcotics. I just didn't go knock on the door and the guy sold me narcotics. I had a guy in the street. uh, He took me up there and he introduced me and that's how I got into that world. Well, I uh, I, I went to a bar that was frequented that was frequent. Uh, So I met a guy in the bar, and he was well-dressed. He was a man. And it was two and three times that I met him in the bar, and I said things like, you know, I didn't know who I was, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe I wasn't who I was. And I I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to see, and... I'd like to see the see the life and so forth. And he said, "Yeah, uh, you know, meet me tomorrow night, and I'll I'll take you into one of the bars." So I got there before he got there, and I waited outside. Once I saw him go inside, I ran quite quickly. I was challenged at the door, and I said, "I'm with him." And they said, "A okay," and I was into the world. And that's how that's that's how I got into that world. But I soon found out, <clears throat> I soon found out there were two worlds. Um, there was the world of the individual that worked on Wall Street, 
uh, never made never made a problem, never made and, and paid his taxes, worked, I, had a family, and then there was the leather, the leather side, the leather side of the world. Those clubs were entirely different. I mean, those clubs uh, that I went to, uh, you know, I always felt, uh, I always felt it was like a sign of danger. There really was a sign of danger there. And the, <clears throat> those clubs had all kinds of names, which I'm, I'm, I'm not going to call now. So I got into those clubs also. I saw what was going on. Uh, a, a lot of... A lot of the, the action, if you will, it took place over in the yards uh, in the uh, west side of uh, Manhattan where all the trucks were right off the uh, west side highway there. Also, it took place in Central Park in a place called in Central Park in Manhattan, in New York City, obviously, in the Brambles. And I saw what was going on over there. One day, while working on the while working on this case, while working on this case, I was down at the yards, and as I got there, here were two guys, one black, one white, and they were walking, they were walking, and they actually had him. Uh, each one was on the side on the side of this individual, and they were going they were going to his car. They, and they got in the car, and I quickly got the license plate of the, the license plate of the car as it drove off. And what I did was I drove to the precinct, which I believe was the it might have been the the fifth precinct that was down there. The, I don't remember which one. I ran in and screaming at the sergeant on the desk. I gave him the plate number. I told him who I was. And by the way, <clears throat> by the way, living in that world, <clears throat> um, my neighbor uh, in the apartment uh, would paint a star over one of my eyes, and there was some glitter in there. And I quickly got named in the in the community. Uh, my name was Sparkle. It, 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 I was known as Sparkle. And I would be out walking on 14th Street, cruising back and forth, just like everybody else. Uh, everybody else was there, and I have to say this uh, at this time: while I was out uh, doing that, and they would uh, pass uh, pa pass a, 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 a radio car. When they would pass a radio car, remember I'm a cop, and I would see the cops out in the radio car, and the way that they were looking, they were. I was afraid. I was really afraid. However, <clears throat> the sergeant put it out on the air, the plate number, the description of them, and the car number. And don't you know, just like in the movies, a radio car that got that transmission caught them. Caught them with the individual, caught both of them, and of course, these cases are now being handled by detectives. And they showed up to the scene and brought them into the precinct. Of course, I went up to the precinct and identified bo uh, both of them, absolutely identified both of them, and they were under arrest. Now, by this time, 
when the arrest was made, the meetings that I would have at the assistant district attorney's office, he says, it's been stepped up, Randy. We are now finding body parts. We're finding body parts on 14th Street uh, in, in the Hudson River. They found an arm in there. So now I was now chasing what we all believe killers, killers. However, on the arrest and the stories that they told, and I'll just share one, uh, <clears throat> we, we never got them. We never got them uh, uh, f uh, for the killings. There, w there was no evidence whatsoever, and it was well investigated by these detectives that they were doing the killings. And that would be solved much later on. However, this is what they would do. They would get that individual, and they would drive to the, the precinct, uh, the 7th precinct or one of the precincts, and it had a rather large window that looked out on the street. One of them would get out, go into the precinct, and they would ask for directions. And the sergeant was there behind the desk. He would give them the directions. They would come out, and they would say to the individual, that cost, that cost $100. I'm talking 1963. You know what $100 is probably worth today? A thousand, maybe more. Then, on a, a couple of occasions, they kept them overnight. And they would show up to court in the morning into the building, 100 Center Street. They would take the elevator, go up, and they would go into the courtroom where they kept this individual in, in the back of the court, and he'd go up and talk to what they call the bridge man. And, of course, he's saying to the bridge man, is this part 2B? I need to be able to put 1A. And the bridge man would say, no, that's outside, blah, blah, blah. They'd come back and say, that cost $150. You know, the judge is going to go along with it. This is all in front. That's what they... That's exactly what they would do. That's as far as they were going working, working this, uh, this scheme. And this is, why the, the, this is why in that community that the individuals knew that these guys were cops and therefore they wouldn't go to the police department and they would go to the district attorney's office. Well, of course, of course, you know, that was the end of the case. Now, I want to jump ahead uh, to Billy Freakin, Billy Freakin, and the making of the motion picture Cruising, starring Al Pacino, Paul Savino. By the way, um, they were not the original people, and I'll get into this, they were not the original people that were to be cast into the movie Cruising. Jerry Weintraub, who was producing the movie, uh, Jerry Weintraub managed or represented Frank Sinatra. And that's the first name that was in for cruising. Al, uh, that, and of course, Paul Savino wound up with that part. He was the captain. Al Pacino's part originally they wanted Richard Gere Richard Gere was going to do that <clears throat> I don't know too much about how the casting worked out and stuff like that although Billy did uh, 
confide an awful lot in me, Billy Freakin. <clears throat> so here's how that happened. Uh, I had done the French Connection with Billy. I'd, uh, I, I, to live and die in L.A., um, I, I did a Sorcerer, uh, which we will go into in another episode. I went halfway around the world doing Sorcerer, wound up in the jungles of uh, in Santa Domingo with him doing Sorcerer. But I had done these pictures, especially the French Connection. So by the time it came to do Cruising, I mean, friends? Absolutely. I mean, yes. So we were in Texas, and Billy was trying to option, uh, option a book, and it was called For the Love of Money or Honor and Money. Or it didn't work out. We're on an airplane coming back coming back to New York where Billy lived at the time on Park Avenue over there. And um, making the movie, The French Connection, what you saw in The French Connection, what you saw, all the drugs and everything that, was, that were going on at the time, Billy Freakin was living on Park Avenue and he repeatedly said to me, to where he was living, I can't believe I live six minutes away from what's happening and the street on the French Connection. But we'll go into that much later on at a different episode. So we're on the airplane, and he said to me, he said, Randy, he said, <clears throat> I have just optioned a book called Cruising. And he said, it's written by, I believe, Gerald Walker. He said, I don't want you to read the book. He said, I'm just optioning the book for the title Cruising. And I said, okay. And he said, now you have said to me what went on back then, uh, uh, what you did living in the apartment and stuff along the line. And I said, yeah. He said, we're going to get together. He said, and I'm going to write, I'm going to write what you did Back then. Back then means 1963, because that's what I was doing in 1963, and I forget when we were making, what year we were making cruising in. And so <clears throat> I stayed with Billy, I mean, nights. He loved to work at night and stayed with him, and he wrote, he wrote cruising. He took nothing, to this day I haven't read the book, but he took nothing from the book. Everything that you see in the movie Cruising uh, was a scene that I told him how it happened and he, and he wrote it. He didn't let me see what he was writing. And this took, this took maybe months, maybe months. Now, it's one o'clock in the morning, and I'm at home, and the telephone rings, and it's Billy Freakin. And he says to me, Randy, I have to get into the killer's apartment. He said, but I, we can't use, uh, we can't use a, a, a subpoena, we can't use a warrant, because we, we can't let him know what the Al Pacino character is looking for in that apartment. 
And he said, how are we going to do this? This is 1 o'clock in the morning. How are we going to do this? And I said, Billy, I said, at this point in the story, you have Al Pacino following this guy day and night. Al Pacino knows when this guy goes to the bathroom. He knows all about him. In fact, you have Al Pacino standing across the street from his apartment looking into this guy's apartment. And Billy is saying, yeah, yeah. I said, well, when he comes out of his apartment, instead of following him, Instead of following him, because you know he's going to go take the bus, uh, you, and you're going to follow him. In fact, you were getting on the, the bus with him. Once he goes out of the apartment, I said, we're going to go in the apartment. And he said, oh, we're going to pick the lock. I said, no, we're not going to pick the lock. We're not going to do that, Billy. I said, listen to me. Listen to me. Al Pacino is a cop. He's me. He's me. I said, what he's going to do is he's going to go downstairs, he's going to jump up on the fire escape. I said he's going to have a newspaper, and he's going to go up the stairs to where the guy lives on the fire escape, and there's a fan in the window. He's going to stick the newspaper in the fan, in the fan. The fan will stop, and then he's going to go into the apartment, and he's going to get, I don't know what you want him to get, and he's going to get whatever he needs. And Billy freaking says to me, did I ever tell you that I love you? And I says, no, not lately, Billy. You haven't told me that lately. And I would say to him, look, Bill, if I'm going up the fire escape and a, a police car comes by and they're going to say, whatever you're going to do, I'm going to show them my badge and I'm going to tell them to leave. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to leave. They're going to leave. Anybody that I'm going up the fire escape, whether it's the superintendent or the people that are going to come out and say, what are you doing on the fire escape? I'm going to tell them, I'm a cop. They're going to go right back inside. I said, this badge, Al Pacino's carrying this, it carries a lot of weight. Use it. We can use it. And that's exactly how that scene in Cruising got into the movie. And there are many, many more. Uh, the same way that, that got into the movie. Uh, so I think we're going to get ready to take a, a break here, and <clears throat> I'll be back. Uh, I'll be back with the, the making of, of the movie, which uh, I made many, many movies in my time, and this was so, so difficult being out in the streets in the city of New York trying to film Al Pacino. Very difficult, very difficult. We'll be right back. Jimmy, I gotta take a dump. What? No, I mean I need a dumpster. <sighs> well, for all those needs, you need to call Big V Dumpster Rental, Long Island, New York, 631-900-DUMP. And APB, American Protection Bureau, voted number one best on Long Island for all your security needs. Call 631-390-9050. That's 631-390-9050. APB. 
In the mood for a freshly roasted cup of coffee? www.offtherailscoffeeroasters.com Welcome back. Uh, we were talking about the writing and different scenes uh, from making the motion picture uh, cruising. Now it comes time, obviously, uh, to make the picture. <clears throat> I have now worked three or four pictures uh, with Billy Freakin. If you want to talk about a director that wants to put, you know, R-E-A-L onto R-E-E-L, it's Billy Freakin. Um, <clears throat> Making the French Connection. Every location you see in the French Connection happened, really happened, when we were making the real case. One of the, one, one of the pictures that I worked with, with Billy Freakin is um, uh, Brinks, the Brinks. And that's, of course, it's, it's about a big robbery, and it has two big doors that they open up, when they get the money and they do the dance and brinks and everything, those doors were in Minnesota. Guess what? Billy Freakin had those doors shipped in from Minnesota to Boston to turn Boston in the 70s back to the 40s to when this robbery happened and those doors are prominently displayed in, in the movie, in the making of Brinks. That's Billy Freakin. So you can imagine that we're going to make Cruising and guess where it's going to happen. It's where it really happened. So <clears throat> by now, there's a tremendous amount of adversity um, in the making of Cruising. One of the things that's that's not discussed, that's not discussed, and it, sh it, it, it shouldn't be, is that I'm working on these pictures in the city of New York. French Connection, Badge 373, The 7-Ups, uh, Report to the Commissioner, uh, The Godfather. Crime in New York City is through the roof. There are 2,000 homicides every year being committed in the city of New York. The graffiti, the homelessness, the city is going broke. There's no money. And we're out in the street with these pictures, making these motion pictures under these conditions. Well, the insurance tripled. We had to, in, to insure these pictures. And yes, I can't remember what picture it was. They actually stole the camera. They stole one of the cameras. I mean, and the price of those cameras? And <clears throat> I was told, you know, because I was a detective, you know, can you work on this case and so forth? So I was told that if you wanted to get this camera back, uh, you'd have to go to South America. 
South America to get this camera back. So while we're making all of these movies, you know, that's what's going on in terms of filming in the, in the city. So where are we going to film cruising? It's not going to be on some soundstage. It's not going to be out in California. It's not going to be in Canada. And we're going to duplicate it. No, it's going to be where it happened. It's going to be in the Brambles up in Central Park. No, it's going to be on Riverside Drive. Uh, a lot, a, and it's going to be, a lot of it's going to be at night. And are we going to need security? Yes. What's the type of security that we're going to need? Well, there's a lot of demonstration that is happening regarding the movie and it's this is not happening no you can't make this movie you shouldn't do this movie and what's never told and I'm an eyewitness to this and let me exaggerate if this was happening on one side of the street on the other side of the street there was just tremendous support uh, for this movie and they were shouting just as loud that the movie should be made. So, never the two should meet. So, besides the, the crime that's happening in the city, we needed the security. We needed the security that they wouldn't, uh, you know, come on the set, storm on the set. I remember one night when we were filming and Jerry Weintraub, the producer was always there. And he was on the film truck. He was there. And we got Al Pacino in the street. And I'm maybe 15, 20 feet behind uh, Al. Be, uh, behind Al. <clears throat> and yes, I did, uh, I think I did quite a bit of uh, acting uh, with, uh, with Al practically in every scene that Al is on camera, I'm on camera with him as a detective, and I'm, I, I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in the car, and uh, we, we, have a, we have great dialogue. It's all, it's all in there. So I'm making sure that I'm not on camera, but I'm there. Uh, I'm there for, for Al. But it was so bad <clears throat> that we could not get his dialogue. <clears throat> They, they did the best that they could, uh, but the shouting and the screaming, and so we did that. I believe it's called on an ADR stage. I'm not sure. So later on, uh, we went in, and uh, Al Pacino, I mean, the guy is gracious in the giving of his time and making a movie like this with, with what's going on with both sides uh, of the street, which is happening with him, and the man... The man is a consummate professional, and he, he's doing his acting. So what happens on this one particular night, somebody throws a bottle at the film, at the film truck, and the bottle, where it, it hits, it hits the film truck right where the metal is, and that's where Jerry Weintraub's hand is. And <clears throat> we, have to take him, we have to take him to the emergency room I don't know if he was stitched or not, but we took him to the emergency room and within nothing flat, 
Jerry Weintraub is back on the film truck shouting his encouragement to let's continue uh, to make the film. And, of course, Pacino is doing what he was doing. And I would say uh, that night was probably, forgive my English, but that was the most dangerous night of, of, of the filming of, of Cruising. Um, I remember, I remember once uh, where we actually, we actually did a raid. We did a raid uh, on the Triangle Motel down there on 14th Street. Uh, we, 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 we did a raid down there, and uh, Pacino, Pacino was with us. And it was the R-E-A-L that Billy wanted to put on the R-E-E-L. So there came a time while <clears throat> the making of the movie that Billy Freakin wanted to, to go into these clubs. So <clears throat> it took me a, a lot of work and a lot of meetings. And my audience here... Please call up and, you know, when you see this, with your comments, but ask questions. So, I'm going to tell you, it's no small guess who I had to meet with to make sure that we could get into these clubs. And it wasn't the people in the clubs that were going to stop us from getting in there. Enough said about that. So, <clears throat> yes. I got Billy. I got Billy into the clubs, and um, that took time. No, there was no filming. I got Billy into the clubs. In the clubs was Billy Freakin, the Academy Award-winning director for The French Connection, the maker of The Exorcist, to live and die in L.A. and making the movie Cruising. Was Billy Freakin up on the floor dancing? Yes. Guess who his partner was? A detective by the name of Randy Jurgensen. Thank God there was no cameras and it's not on films. Yes, we did, we did do that. Um, once we did that, Billy said, <clears throat> you got to get Al in there. And I said, you know, what's going to happen once I get Al in there, everything is really going to stop and it's going to be all about Al. Bring Al in there. Sure enough, got Al in there. I got Al in there. And, yep, yeah. But Al was just the observer. So when we came to duplicating the scene, the, the people that are in the scene, in those scenes, are not Screen Actor Guild members. They are the people that go to those clubs. And Al Pacino is now in there doing that. And that's how that scene was done. It was... It was duplicated from the R-E-A-L with Al there. 
then it was R E E L with Al uh, uh, p putting it on film. <clears throat> the film is made, um, <clears throat> and the film is released. So there is a showing. There is a showing, and um, and it's the people, and I'm going to call them the activists. It you know, it it's the people there. Let me just stop here just for one moment, just for one moment. Let me just take you back, and I promise this is only one minute, a minute and a half. Let me take you back to 1963, long before the, this picture is being made, you know, and I am working undercover, and I am now working undercover, I'm now working undercover on possibly cops, white and black, the salt and pepper team, killing homosexuals. I am working on that. Don't you know that I get called into the district attorney's office and they're asking me to go up into Greenwich Village to work on a lewd and indecent act? And I'll tell you, that's just a tease. That's just a tease. But if you figure it out and, you, and if you ask a question at, this, at seeing this, I will answer the question of who it is. So <clears throat> enough said on that. Now let's go back. Let's go back. To the filming. Let's go back to the showing of cruising. So we show cruising, and it's really, it's really, there are, I'm going to call them activists, really there. And at the end of it, Billy comes up and gets, gets onto the stage. Well, the Q&A, it, believe me, it was far from a Q&A. And I thought at one point, because the people were getting up and they were coming to the stage, I was in the back. And I ran down to the back. I ran down and I got up on the stage. Once again, the way I looked out for Al Pacino, I was now looking out for Billy Freakin. And he was, he was giving it back. Billy Freakin, Billy Freakin is a kid from the, from, the tough, mean streets of Chicago, and quite a good basketball player. So Billy Freakin was just giving it back as hard as he was getting it. There was language, there were threats, and so I got up on the stage. And at one point, I screamed at the top of my lungs, and I said back to them, I am the cop. I am the cop that went cruising. This was an assignment that never happened before, and it's never happened since. But I am that cop. Direct your criticism or whatever it is at me. You direct it at me. What you see up on that screen, Billy freaking did not make up. I gave it to him. I told him what I saw. I did that. Not Billy. Not Billy. And for a moment there, it sort of quieted down. But then it got back up to it got back up to to, to what it was, and um, and I said to Billy and the other detectives that were there, I believe it was Sonny Grasso and I, I don't know who else came down and they said it's time to leave. 
that's how the premiere of Cruising came about. That's how it came about. Now, we escorted them, we escorted them out. And of course, the motion picture went on to do what it was. <clears throat> Not long after that, the motion picture, it was playing in Europe. And the film end of Germany invited me out to Germany. And as Billy said, you're a fucking celebrity now in Germany. And then I got an, into, uh, uh, an invite into the Netherlands. Uh, I don't know if Holland's in the Netherlands, but I, I remember the invite to come to Europe. They would show the picture and I would answer questions. I did have an occasion... I did have an occasion to go to Europe on another motion picture, and I was and, and, and I was in uh, Germany. And as so, as soon as they found out that I was the cop from cruising, it it, it turned into that. Uh, it seems that uh, it it seems that in Europe, uh, possibly, uh, and this is me saying it, that the picture was w uh, well well received, well received. Um, <clears throat> When the when the picture came out, uh, when it came out in in Blu-ray, wow! I mean, interview after interview, which I gave uh, about you know the only cop that went that 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 did this, the only cop that went cruising, uh, as they say, it's been in magazines, uh, it, it's been in the newspapers, uh, the interviews about it. And uh, once again, uh, I was at a 42nd Street premiere, a 42nd Street premiere with my family and uh, Billy Freakin for the, for the Blu-ray. They, they actually showed it, the Blu-ray, in a theater. And two people came up to me, and I've been given signatures. They, they come up with some kind of paraphernalia, uh, you know, wh whether it's the, the poster or whatever it is. And, of course, I sign it. And there were two people that came up to me with Randy Jurgensen's dolls from Cruising. And it was a replica of Al Pacino and me mixed in there. That got to be, that got to be pretty scary. So <clears throat> that's really... That's really, I, 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 I do believe, the making of cruising uh, from, from start to finish. Uh, I'm hoping that when you view this, that you will make comments. Don't put down like. Make comments. Ask questions. And in the next episode, I'll do my level best to, uh, uh, you know, to, to answer these inquiries. And I apologize. I apologize uh, to the viewers of not mentioning in my last one uh, the making of the motion picture, uh, the motion picture of a sorcerer. So until the next time, and if you get a chance, read these books. Read these books. Um, <clears throat> please take care, and I'll see you the next time.